In the United States, one of every four girls and one of every six boys are sexually abused. 20 million Americans living now were victims of parental incest as children. Child pornography is one of the fastest growing internet businesses ever by 150% each year. More than 120,000 kids were sexually abused by the Catholic Church alone. Four point five million public school students have experienced sexual assault or rape at their school. And here in America, more than one point three million children are sexually abused by someone every year. Up to or more than five hundred thousand child molesters are operating in the United States right now. The FBI says a sex offender lives in every square mile of this country. One in ten men molest children and 95% know who their abuser is because few are ever strangers. Their parents, step-parents, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Friends, neighbors, coaches, clergy, babysitters, and teachers. There are more than 60 million survivors of childhood sexual abuse. I am just one. My name is Sherry Roberts, and you're listening to Sickness of Silence. Welcome to the show. We're sending out an SOS. Sickness of Silence is a special monthly series that I do on challenging the rhetoric. Created it to directly address the worldwide pandemic of childhood sexual abuse. It's everywhere. Truly, truly it is. And we have to stop it. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. It's also Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So it makes sense that people would recognize it on this day. But we have to stop waiting for an awareness day to be aware. And it is up to all of us, whether it's touched us or not, to be talking about this so that it is everyday conversation. We have to stop looking the other way and pretending it's not happening or it's not so bad or someone somehow otherwise minimized the problem because it hasn't happened to them or, or someone they love or know that they know because a lot of people don't talk about it until well into their adult years as the survivors on the panel tonight know. This series is a collaborative effort of many to create a continuous and candid public dialogue. Public dialogue. It has to be not a secret. Child sexual abuse is uh, its not something to hush up. Uh, it's not something to hush up about at all, and especially if we want to stop it, and we do. So no matter how hard some of tonight's information will be to hear, you need to hear it, and then you need to step outside of your comfort zone, and you need to share it. You need to share it. You really do. I, I, I can't stress that enough. This is the fourth roundtable in the series that I've done now. I have a great group of intelligent uh, panelists that's joining me tonight. Some are returning guests that you are already familiar with if you've listened to the series thus far, and some are brand new to the show. But before I start bringing them on, let me set up the show proper for all my listeners there. Tonight I'm going to be tweeting and posting to you on the social media. You can find me on Twitter at CTR News Feed. You can also go to um, the Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash sickness of silence. 
please be sure to also check out the website at sicknessofsilence.org or .com, and you can find a lot of really informative articles um, and information there for parents, for kids. There's stuff there for kids. Um, there's some great links to some books that are really great for kids, but there's really some great information and resources for parents and educators and um, you know all those things that you heard in the opening, all those people that are you know, potential pedophiles out there, um, and their peers around them. You need to know what to look for. And we have those resources on the sicknessofsilence.org webpage. So um, please, please check that out. There are also some resources there for pedophiles themselves. There are many pedophiles that, that hate what is wrong with them, and they haven't acted out. They haven't committed a crime yet. They want help. They don't know how to go about getting help. There are some links on the website for them, too. Eventually, um, I know a few uh, that I've been speaking to, and they're very uh, timid uh, coming on the show, but eventually we will be talking with some of them live on the show to interact and engage with the experts as well as the adult survivors from childhood sexual abuse. That will be coming down the road. Um, I'm going to be taking callers tonight, so if you'd like to call in and participate, the number is 646-787-1790. And the chat room is also live, so if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment or just kind of hang out with us in the chat room, you can find the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts, and that's C-H-E-R-I. So blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. And if you're already on the page and you don't see the chat room, hit your refresh button and scroll down right beneath that slider and it'll be right there and you'll find it. So, it's time to start bringing on the panelists. So, the person I always bring on first is Sue Shugart. And Sue is my social media manager. She does work for me both for the SOS series as well as my regular Wednesday weekly show, Challenging the Rhetoric. And uh, she's a great help to me, but she is also a fella, <laughs> a survivor. Sue, welcome back. Hi, Sherry. It's always good to be back and be part of the show. Well, I appreciate you because you and I, we have um, different thoughts and ideas and experiences uh, about what happened mm-hmm. to us as children, and um, as, as do the rest of the panelists here that I'm going to bring on right now. So, um, you know, nobody, if you're listening uh, tonight live or to an archive, if you've experienced this or you know someone who has, there isn't a, a better story than someone else's or a worse story or than someone else's. It doesn't work that way. Abuse is abuse is abuse, especially when it comes to sexual abuse with children. So right now, uh, live with us all the way from Rio de Janeiro, <laughs> I am going to be bringing on um, this retired FBI agent. And his name is Bobby Chacon. And really nice guy. I've been talking to him for a little bit now. We connected on LinkedIn. And if if you're a networking sort of person for anything of import, I highly suggest using LinkedIn. Uh, Very different from other social media like Facebook and Twitter. I do a lot of very serious business there. But that's how I met Bobby. And Bobby is joining us live via Skype. His audio might sound a little bit different. I'm not sure if we're going to experience any delays. But not only is he a retired FBI agent, Bobby Chacon was the head of the FBI dive team, and I think that he was the creator or part of creating it, and he'll explain that to us in a minute. But he, what that dive team do, did was underwater forensics and obviously um, recovering bodies, cadavers, and many of those bodies were children over the years. In addition to that, 
as as a retired FBI agent, he's a technical advisor on television shows, crime dramas like Criminal Minds, uh, Beyond Borders, that that the series that series of Criminal Minds just began, and we'll talk about a little bit about that and what the entertainment industry in Hollywood, how they portray things um, of of this topic and how maybe they can do better with with his assistance and being a part of this show. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Um, I am going to, uh, we'll get more into who you are and what you do in just a minute, but I want to go ahead and bring on the the other panelists so that we have the full roundtable here. The next person I'm going to be bringing on is Andrea Clements, and Andrea has been with us before, and she's a, a returning guest. She is an author. She wrote a book called Invisible Target. She herself is a survivor of educator sexual abuse, uh, and ed- educator abuse, and she is um, an educator herself for the Kids Safe Foundation. Andrea is a wonderful, wonderful person. I've had many interactions with her now uh, for for months, and she's a true pleasure to to be able to talk to her again. Andrea, welcome back. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your kind words. Oh, I adore you. You know this. <laughs> um, likewise, so, and likewise. I'm gonna great. I'm I'm gonna give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about you versus just what I say about you as well. Uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and bring uh, Frederick Lane on. Fred uh, Fred Lane is also uh, he's he's a regular. He's here every month, and hopefully that will continue on. He's also uh, a semi regular returning guest on my my Wednesday show, Challenging the Rhetoric. Fred is a, a tremendous resource when it comes to all things cybercrime, forensics, and, of course, for me with this show, child pornography, but also for the other show, pornography in general and the Internet sex industry. Uh, Frederick Lane has been with me many, many, many times. I am so grateful to always have him around. Fred, welcome back. Sherry, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much. I'm glad to have you. I'm going to bring back another recurring guest right now, Michelle Forbes, and Michelle is also a survivor. She's a formal legal assistant. She has a daycare in her home, but she is also a, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Her abuse, and she'll, she'll tell you a little bit more bullet points, and you can hear more from previous shows as well, was also by uh, an educator in her school. Her story is pretty extensive. Um, there's some ongoing things with school boards and districts and stuff like that, and, and we'll hear some of that. So um, I'm really glad to have her back. She's always great to have on. She's a wonderful personality. Michelle, welcome back. Thank you, Sherry. Hello, everybody. Howdy, howdy. Um, We have another new guest. Bobby is not the only newbie tonight. Uh, We have another new guest tonight, and his name is Charles Strecker. And Charles has several different stories. I'm actually going to have Charles on my regular weekly show for a story about his younger brother that we'll talk about a little bit if we have time towards the end of the panel tonight. But Charles had been in and out of foster care, and he had experienced many different kinds of child abuse. The particular type of sexual abuse that Charles dealt with um, was more of a psychological factor. It involved his uh, biological mother, who he has uh, a relatively renewed relationship with now as an adult. Um, Charles is... uh, He's an international child abuse prevention task. He's a, he's a founder and director, sorry, of the International Child Abuse Prevention Task Force. 
uh, and also through Charlie's Angels Empowerment Programs, which has to do with his uh, little brother. He's a real empowering speaker. He's an authority on overcoming adversity. He also knows one of our regular panelists, Michael Skinner, who won't be here tonight. Michael Skinner is a keynote speaker for many things, and he does have a different engagement tonight, and I believe he'll be back with us again next month. But, Charles, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, Sherry, thank you for affording me the opportunity to be on on air with you, and thank you to the other panelists. I look forward to the show. Thank you. I, I just really, really appreciate it. Um, now, you know, my the board is already lighting up. There's a, there's a couple callers, and um, so I'm I'm gonna when when I was listening to the intro music, there were some callers in there that I wasn't sure who they were. As a matter of fact, I thought Bobby Chacon was just a listener, and not realizing it was him. Um, so I, there's a call that has a comment for Michelle um, because Michelle's been on the show before. So I'm gonna bring the caller on right now. Uh, they say their name is DV, and Michelle, whatever their comment is, it's for you. Greetings. This is Darth Vader, Lord of the Sith and Commander of the Galactic Empire. It was during my meditation that I sensed a great disturbance in the Force. It was then I realized it was your birthday. Most impressive. Your age has increased your control of your emotions. This will give you a clearer path to the dark side. But before that, let me deliver you this specialized message. Compliments of the Galactic Empire. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday from the dark side. Happy birthday to you. Remember, with control of your fear and anger, the dark side will be a powerful ally. Join me as we conquer the galaxy and buy vast amounts of lottery tickets. If you're not of legal age, then we shall use the force to have others buy them for us. Consider it. Until then, have a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Michelle. Thanks for joining us on your birthday. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was awesome. It's not every day, I, I <laughs> it's I, not every day you get Darth Vader. No, I, I have a friend that calls me every year and sings it Marilyn Monroe style, like she sang it to the president. But I've never had Darth Vader. That's a new one. Thank you. Well, you know, you 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 have to understand. I thought of Marilyn because I use her little happy birthday often, but I didn't think it would be very appropriate for the show. Um, so, <laughs> on that note, we're going to start with Michelle. Um, we're going to let Michelle kind of open up uh, here and talk a little bit about um, what happened to her. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to spend all of our time talking about a lot of the backstories because we are trying to move forward and give the listeners, regardless of how this has touched them or not. Um, different actionable things that they can do. So, Michelle, can you tell the listener a little bit about what happened to you, the age you were, and where the status of things are now? Well, uh, when I was 14, uh, the most charming teacher in the hall started grooming me with compliments, you know, talking about how beautiful I was and inviting me to his office to be his secretary. He introduced sexual things to me when I was 15, and started to slowly introduce more and more things. But he told me that he couldn't have sex with me until a special day, which was my 17th birthday. 
So my birthday has always been been a rough day. It's it's never just been my birthday. It marks the anniversary of when that control started. So right now, I was silent for 30 years about the abuse that he brought to my life, the emotional abuse, the mental abuse, the sexual abuse, the deviant behavior. And I broke that silence eight months ago in a speech to our Board of Education, asking them for changes for our kids. And since then, I've met wonderful people like you and Fred and Andrea and Michael. And shout out to Andrea. I would not be here right now if I had not taken her call in June. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. Happy to help. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> and it's it's just it's the eight months has been very difficult. It's it's been difficult because people still make me feel like I've done something wrong. It's it's still very much a shameful thing. They make you feel like you're the one that should still be silent. But that being said, it's just it's taken a weight off my shoulders to share my truth with others who are where I was eight months ago. You know, people that need to hear it's okay to talk about what happened to you and you didn't do anything wrong and you shouldn't be ashamed and this person was a predator. And so right now, that's where I'm at. Michelle, um, I, uh, I know that today is, is a hard day and I want to let the listeners, I, I want to reemphasize a, a part of what you said so that the listeners, in case they didn't pick up on that when you're talking about eight months ago, Michelle talking about all these things that happened to her is relatively new for her, whereas someone like I have been talking about this for decades. Um, And that's part of the dynamic of being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and when you do finally start opening up and and talking about things. Um, So, Bobby, I want to let you have a moment, uh, please, if you could tell the listener a little bit about your experience with the FBI. And, and again, it's, you know, we do a PG-13 show here, and I keep it at 13 because I think that at 13 they're old enough to hear, no matter how really graphic we are and we're respectful, but the things, the dangers, the the realities, and, and you saw a lot of, the ugly, the, the aftermath of those that never survived uh, any kinds of abuses or abductions and stuff of children um, in your career. So if you can uh, briefly tell the listener a little bit about your career with the FBI and then um, a little bit about your experiences and what it felt like when you were pulling out a body of a child. Sure. Um, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing. Okay, so first of all, my career was 27 years um, basically in, in uh, New York City field office and the Los Angeles field office. In the Los Angeles field office? Uh-oh, I think we lost Bobby. Bobby is with us again, uh, just to remind everybody, via Skype, um, live from Rio de Janeiro. So um, I'm going to try to get him back on. His call has apparently dropped. Uh, I'll ask one more time. Bobby, are you with us? Okay. Bobby's going to have to call back in. So I'm going to um, uh, – we'll hear more about Bobby, and I can fill in some of the details just for some reason we can't get him back. Um, I'm going to jump right over to um, – Bobby, are you back? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right over to Fred Lane. Frederick Lane is a regular on SOS. Fred, can you please tell the listener a little bit about – uh, what you do that's relevant to tonight's show and the things that we talk about every month here. 
Sure, Sherry. Happy to do it. As you know, I, I spend a lot of time researching various emerging technologies, so really focusing on new types of hardware, new types of apps, uh, those kinds of things. And over the last five years, I've really been concentrating on the risks to kids and to educators from the use of digital devices. I wrote two books uh, back in 2011, Cyber Traps for the Young, and then last year, Cyber Traps for Educators. And what these books are designed to do is to help educate parents, educators, administrators about some of these risks, and more importantly, the kinds of things that we can do to minimize the incidence of this in the schools. And unfortunately, and, and, and one of the reasons that I find this group so useful, unfortunately, a lot of those incidents involve inappropriate or criminal relationships between teachers and children. And unfortunately as well, my experience shows that the new technologies that we have available to ourselves do make it easier and in many cases faster for these relationships or these assaults really, which is the better word, for these assaults to occur. And I don't think that it is a huge problem uh, with respect to the overall number of teachers in the world, but the, the issue that we face is that even one case is bad enough, and so we need to fix it. And so what I do is I travel around the country lecturing to school districts and to parent groups in an attempt to help things out. And, and you, you do a great job. I mean, you've written many books, uh, you know, Cyber Traps for Educators, uh, as well as others. You've written on books that are of uh, kind of aligned topics as well. I think that we have Bobby back. Um, he's Skyping in, so I, I have a random number that pops up each time he disconnects and Skypes in. I'm hoping 217 is Bobby Chacon. Are you back with us? If not, I just brought on a listener. <laughs> uh, calling from area code 217. Is it a listener calling in? Oh, that's Michelle calling back in. Okay, gotcha. All right, so um, here, here's the deal. I'm trying to get Bobby back, but in the meantime, we're going to keep moving forward. So I want to jump on over real quick to Andrea. Andrea, if you can um, tell the listeners a little bit about um, you, what you do, what your experience was, what your abuses were. Um, and then what you do now as an adult. Sure. Um, I was also groomed by my middle school teacher for two years, and then he proceeded to sexually abuse me all throughout high school and beyond. I finally broke away um, after a long time, and then years after that, I uh, came forward to this school, informed the principal that the teacher, who was still teaching, had molested me, and he identified right away when he knew who I was, he guessed that it was that that teacher. So somewhere in in his mind, he realized that he had known the warning signs but didn't put a name to it. The school system did nothing about this. And then eight months later, I got a call from local detectives stating that this teacher was in custody for statutory rape of two 14-year-old girls. And that is what fueled me to start speaking out. So that was in 2002. So I've been speaking about my experience since then to anyone who will listen pretty much to really try to educate 
everyone on warning signs, what to look for and what to do when you sense them. And so I've written a book, Invisible Target, Breaking the Cycle of Educator Abuse, where I really try to make it more than a memoir. I have scenario-type questions at the end of each chapter really designed to engage people in discussion so that we can start talking about solutions rather than we need to start with an awareness but then move forward from that. And I really believe strongly that breaking the silence surrounding abuse everywhere is is critical. And so I also believe in prevention, starting with a young age. So I found Kids Safe Foundation, and we focus on prevention education, safety, personal safety education for kids, four-year-olds through fifth graders. We have an eight-week curriculum in the schools. We have parent seminars and teacher workshops so that we are all on board, all on the same page with empowering our kids without fear, just empowering them with personal safety skills so that we, it has a ripple effect and we can have a much safer generation. And the ripple effect is, is extremely important in all we do because there is no overnight answer. The biggest thing that, in my opinion, that we can do, which is why I do this series, is is to keep talking about it because, you know, the the, the, the disease is really the silence. Nobody wants to hear our stories. They they cringe and they, like, want to pat us on the back and say, okay, you're okay now, right? Um, well, yeah, we're okay. We're okay. But there's a whole slew of other kids every generation after generation that are not okay. We have Bobby Chacon back. Bobby, you want to go ahead and pick up where you left off? Yes. Okay, so um, so I became a part-time diver in the mid-1990s for the FBI, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, about three years, I ascended and uh, took over the leadership of the team. The FBI laboratory, the forensic division of the FBI laboratory at that time, took notice of our work and decided that it was time to form three other teams. So uh, I spent the next two years setting up those teams. So the FBI now has four underwater crime scene teams or underwater forensic teams, one in New York, one in D.C., one in Miami, and my old team that I eventually took over in Los Angeles. Um, we go around the world, we split the world up into quadrants, and each team has both a domestic and an international responsibility. Um, we do everything from small local cases that we get called in on to large plane crashes. My first job with the dive team was a 747 that crashed off the waters of Long Island with 230 people mm -hmm. on board. Um, I remember that many, case. Yeah, TWA yeah, Flight 800 and... Um, and you know we did ever we did all kinds of evidence recovery we did all kinds of um body recoveries and and um uh and that took me through pretty much the second part of my career i did two tours in iraq doing some counterterrorism stuff i was assigned to the uh, both the salt lake and the athens uh 2004 olympic games as a counterterrorism um so i did some smaller things here and there but basically the the investigations the drug gang investigations and the dive team were my um large segments of my <clears throat> career the dive team um it was which is where i came into contact with um with a lot of body recoveries and a lot of those happened to be children um uh, I, I had I had also had several friends who, because um, of my career, just the timing of it, it kind of spanned the time when the FBI got heavily involved into crimes against children. Um, so I had some very good friends, and they remain good friends. They retired now as well, who um, worked at the Crimes Against Children squad. Um, I remember, and I don't know if it's still a policy, but agents assigned to that squad could no could work it no longer than five years in a row. Um, 
I was in I was a drug investigator for almost 15 years. It was the only time the FBI limited the amount of time an investigator could uh, be focused on one type of investigation. And I think it was felt that longer than five years um, maybe was too long for somebody that was, you know, viewing those kind of images over and over and over again as part of the investigative process. You had to do that. Um, and so I don't know if that policy is still in effect, but I remember my good friends who kind of were there on the, on the ground floor when the FBI started investigating those things um, and were at in, in, innocent images in, in Baltimore and, 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 and some of the very initial efforts um, they had some. They had a, a term limit, which was very new to the FBI. Um, I, for myself, as the dive team leader, both in New York and Los Angeles, and when I was setting up the protocols nationwide, um, I always made it a standard part of my interview for new divers to ask them if they had children. One of the reasons I did that was because I knew that part of our job would be recovering children, and and I had to allow them to know. It wasn't a, obviously it wasn't a disqualifying criteria, but uh, I felt the responsibility to give them full disclosure and let them know that this was an activity that they would be called upon to conduct. Um, I, I don't have any children myself, but I knew that, you know, it, it could and would take a toll. It took, it's taken a toll on myself without any children. And I'm sure, you know, someone with children would, would have an even probably even have a greater impact upon them um, uh, because it's, it's just, um, it's just one of the most unpleasant uh uh, activities that that, a, that an agent would be called upon to do, and so I wanted to always make sure that they could handle it. We had a very um, robust uh, critical incident stress debriefing program, CISD, in the bureau. Um, and any time we came back from a um, a, a recovery, um, it was mandatory that every diver would spend an hour with the um, employee assistance uh, people. Um, and they would do it at their own scheduling and things, but they would have to spend that hour and then they could sit and look at the wall for an hour, but they would spend an hour in there in headquarters and uh, talk to somebody. Um, and it was basically to any, and it was mandatory because we didn't, we wanted to break the taboo. So if, if some, if one of the uh, divers said, you know, I need to talk to somebody and the others didn't, you know, there would be always be some pressure, um, like that. So it was mandatory. Everybody went in and spent that hour. And if you wanted to spend more, you could do follow-up visits and things like that. And many guys did, and, and many divers did. And, and, and a lot of the taboos have now kind of been passed over. I myself, um, so I have, I have that experience wow. of, of the recovery. I have the experience of knowing friends that did the actual investigations. And then I have a, I have a, 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 a family story that, that I, you know, that I can't confirm, but I think a niece was in, was uh, victimized or was about to be victimized by a perpetrator, and uh, and it was uh, it was uh, you know it was another different experience. It was much more personal, obviously. That was much more personal. Um, uh, so so those are the the three components of my attachment to this issue. Um, uh, I could I could go well, into you know individual cases I, and things, but. You know, well, Bobby, whatever you'd I like think, to know. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that um, as we go around the roundtable, I, I know that I have some questions, and I'm sure as we get a little deeper into this, the others will have some questions for you, too. I'm going to move over real quick to Charles, who's also new uh, to SLS. And um, Charles Checker, is, um, his, his story is more of a psychological sexual abuse. And I think that that is incredibly important. And I think it's going to parlay a lot 
with some of the work that Frederick Lane does, and I think that it's actually going to even show Fred an even different layer of this onion, um, as Fred has been experiencing on on this show with what he does. He's he's learning things as he's told me from a completely different perspective uh, on what he does. So um, I think that Charles's story. Um, is going to be relatable in, in that sense, and maybe maybe to other people here on the panel. Um, Charles, I do want to make sure that we keep going round and round, so right now if you could just tell the listeners um, briefly about what your childhood sexual abuse was and by whom, and, and, then just, and then just a little bit about what you do now as an adult towards the awareness of that. Okay, thank you very much again. Uh, yeah, this is my name's Charlie. I'm call, I'm my sexual abuse. I didn't actually realize until I was speaking a few years ago in an event that I had dealt with sexual abuse in my childhood because I always correlated sexual abuse with some sort of euphoric feeling or a touchy feely type thing. But lo and behold, I did find out that I was I did deal with sexual abuse from the age of 13 to 18 at the uh, hands of my maternal mother who would have me watch pornography with her, who would have me shower with her, um, and uh, you know, and dry her off and do those things. I didn't realize all those years as an adult uh, that the effect that that had on me, uh, but it did. It had, a, it had a tremendous effect on me because as a young man and as an adult and as a grown man, uh, it, it grew into a life of uh, struggling with adult pornography uh, that actually destroyed my first marriage. And subsequently uh, caused me to have to take a look at myself and realize that, wow, you know, that, that, that is sexual abuse. And it was really something that was hard to initially speak out about because it's like, well, who's going to think that that is, you know, because it isn't, a, it, you didn't have the, that, that feeling or whatever. But, uh, you know, sadly enough, I realized it is, and it is something that needs to be talked about, and especially more men need to come out. You know, pornography is a pariah. I mean, we, we were trained at oh look at your mom, look at your dad's Playboy magazine, that's okay. Well, no, it's not because you're cheating yourself and you're cheating your future uh, significant other. And currently what I do is I've, I founded a, a international child abuse prevention task force. Uh, unfortunately, due to funding cuts, we don't have funding mo- at the moment, so we're currently on, on hiatus with that. But I also have a speaking company I've named Charlie's Angels Empowerment Programs, and Charlie's Angels, actually my little brother who was murdered in front of me, and like you alluded to earlier, we'll get to that at another time. But uh, with that, I'm able to I'm afforded opportunity to speak both in person via satellite on radio shows like this, on television programs, about different aspects of, of childhood abuse. And like I said, tonight's focus is on that, on that aspect of the psychological effects that a 13- to 18-year-old adolescent boy being exposed to a grown woman's body, being exposed to pornography, uh, had on me both then and then in my latter years of life. Right, and 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 speaking of your brother, I, I do want to make sure that we uh, are able to touch on that uh, prior to the end of the show for sure. And and I think um, that uh, maybe even you know, and I don't mean to overstep, but maybe even at some point uh, after the show or something, maybe even Bobby can give you some direction on that because. The story of your brother, Charles, is even though this show is about childhood sexual abuse, it's still abuse of a child, and the abuse of that child ended in death. And um, it's still basically kind of a, an, a, you know, an unsolved, uh, as far as the books go, uh, an accuracy thing. Um, so 
uh, hang tight, and we're gonna we're gonna move around again. But I, I want to go to Sue, and Sue, um, if you can briefly tell, kind of just recap a little bit uh, to the listener. You were eight years old, and it was a neighbor um, with your abuse. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that was, and then um, and then I, I mean, obviously, what you're doing now is what we're doing here together. Um, but I think the listener needs to know about your little tale because it is. Uh, we're all a little vastly different, but go ahead, Sue. Okay, yeah, I was eight years old, um, and it was a neighbor. was at a neighbor's um, that we hung out a lot. Um, and it, it was right around my eighth birthday. Um, the grooming started, and shortly after um, uh, the touching and then uh, on to uh, molestation. Um, for me, uh, it... it affected my life throughout um it seemed to reoccur not not with this person but it seemed to reoccur as a reoccurring theme throughout my young life um and in into my adulthood uh with manipulation and abuse and um even with myself blaming myself and and things like that um it wasn't until my 20s until I started to, I, I felt like I was really kind of coming apart and I got some help and I did tell a few people. Um, there's only been about six people in my life that I told um, the whole story up until you and I started talking about it and we started the show. So this really is my first experience with um, dealing with this on a real public level. It wasn't until we started this that I told my family and and broadcast it and let people know this is what's going on and and if you want to listen to the show and and hear about what happened and having a dialogue with people you know around me. Well, I remember Sue. I remember when I um, I had you and Kim Lakin. Uh, my childhood uh, best friend, who my family, my own family, sexually abused her, um, and uh, there were her, her her father also did, and and other people. But um, you know, I mean, you can imagine the the burden of shame and guilt or whatever. Even though I was her same age, that my family did this to her. But that's how you and I, Sue, started kind of talking about this topic together. Even though we've been friends for years, and. Yeah. So for the listeners, again, what was, Sue was saying, just like Michelle, this is new to them to be speaking out. And for most people that have experienced this, it, it, they don't speak out at all, uh, if ever. And if they do, it's usually much into their adult years. Rarely do children actually tell. Now, I know many uh, survivors that I've spoken with had moments where they wanted to tell, and would have told if they had a means of doing so, um, that they didn't feel like a danger, that it would get worse and nothing would happen and all of that. Um, You know, I myself told when I was 12, I had just turned 12, and nothing happened. In fact, my parents just moved and into another state, and nothing ever happened, and the abuse continued. So... These, these are these are things that go on and on. I want to jump back over to Bobby Chacon for a minute. Um, Bobby, if you, uh, this this will probably be the hardest question I ask you um, because it's going to be a little emotional for those hearing, and, and I would assume also for you, even though you don't have kids. Do you remember the very first time you pulled a child's body out? 
because I think that the listeners need to understand, um, you know, on this show we talk about child trafficking uh, and, and child abuse in general as well, and, and a lot of these missing children are either part of trafficking or, or they're, they're dead. And those are some of the children that you've, you've pulled out of water and other, other agents pull them out of bushes and stuff. But do you remember the first child? Uh-oh, I think we might have lost Bobby again. <laughs> okay, well, that's what happens with Skype. So we'll try to get him back um, and see if we can make that happen. Oh, I think I got him back now. Hold on a second. Here. Just give me a brief moment. Are you there, Bobby? Did you hear what I was saying? Yeah, yeah I'm here. Okay, can you go ahead you and answer that? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I... Yeah, I actually remember every child that I recovered personally, and I remember the ones where another diver recovered and I was present. Was, uh, do, do you remember, I mean, you you, the, you, the first you one I re- bad. Yeah, I mean, so... The, no, the, fir- the first one I recovered was was a plane crash victim, with the plane crash I mentioned earlier. The first, the first victim I recovered in that was a 12-year-old girl. Um, the first... A child I recovered that was a victim of abuse was um, a four-year-old uh, in West Virginia who was who had been dismembered, but was uh, not. Uh, it was not sexual abuse. It was that I know of. It was um, just physical abuse. Uh, the parents were the perpetrators in that one. Um, the the last uh, the last uh, one I recovered was a 19-year-old uh, kidnap, rape, murder victim who was dismembered and and put in a lake. Um, uh, there was every everything from uh, Chelsea King in San Diego and uh, Connor Peterson up in San Francisco, Lacey Peterson's baby. Um, yep. You know, and and there were there was a, a two-year-old in outside of Clemson, South Carolina. Um, there was a you know there were, there have been too many. Enough. Too many. I mean, and that's that's the real story here. And, and one of the reasons that there are so many, one of the reasons that there are just such high numbers, as you heard in the opening of this, is because for whatever reason, other people, primarily adults, don't want to hear about these things. So it's never talked about in any meaningful way, in any ongoing meaningful way, in order to... Um, be able to be a first line of defense because the reality is is that kids are taught stranger danger, and as all of us know, and as the statistics show, strangers are the least of our concerns. Yes, they're a danger, but most often these things happen within family units or within close family friends um, or in uh, school or coaching situations and churches. I mean, more than 120,000 just within the Catholic Church alone. I mean, 120,000. Think about that number for a minute. 120,000 people. That's a town, people. That's a town full of children. <laughs> that is a, a city full of children uh, that, that, that are abused, just from the Catholic Church. And those are only the numbers that we know. Um, Andrea, I know that you're only with us for a short time more, and I, I want to give you a closing statement at the top of the hour, but to go to you right now, Andrea, can you <laughs> talk a little bit on the prolificness um, of educator abuse in the schools. Yes, it's um, and it's funny because the film Spotlight has really finally gotten a lot of conversation going about the the church abuse, like you just mentioned. And 120,000 is so disturbing. 
and people are finally, I think, letting that sink in. And the the largest statistic that was found was in 2004. The U.S. Department of Education conducted the synthesis of existing literature on educator misconduct throughout the country. And what they found was that nearly one in ten students will experience some form of sexual misconduct by a school employee by his or her senior year of high school, which equals 4.5 million children. It is mind-blowing when you think about that. It is nearly one in ten. And when I do my talks, everyone shakes their head. It's so hard to wrap your head around because so many teachers are wonderful. The vast majority are wonderful. Just like the majority of, of priests are fantastic, right, then have right. the best of intentions. But it, it's this small percentage that can wound so many children. And think about how many more children go to school than go to church. So it kind of well, falls in line true. with the, the percentage, you know. And it is an epidemic that really is not being looked at. On this, It's a systemic problem. We need to examine it at a systemic level. And so many laws need to be put in place. And we're, we're getting, we're, we're making some progress. But there I don't know many school systems at all that are conducting any sort of staff training for educators. They receive abuse training and mandated reporting training, but they aren't receiving training on what to do if you suspect a colleague is abusing a student. And I've spoken with so many teachers where there's so many concerns about false allegations and they wouldn't know where to begin if they have a sense that there's something going on and we need so much training in mm-hmm. education. Well, you know, I- I totally agree, and and I'd like to. I want to again. Each time each of you say something, there's always going to be something I want to highlight out of what you said, and to reiterate something of import. And it's also in the opening of the show. One in ten public school students experience some kind of educator sexual abuse. One mm-hmm. in ten. Every single person listening to this show right now, whether you have children or not, you know 10 kids. Which one is the victim? And what are you doing about it? Really, truly. And then the other thing that I want to point out is there are much more children in public schools than in, you know, the Catholic Church or this thing, and, and, and that's all true. And those numbers can be skewed and analyzed in a million different ways. But I want to say something specifically about any church, okay? The reality is is that many people, whether they identify themselves as spiritual or not, as children, um, sometimes we're sent to church uh, as babysitters, or sometimes we go because we want to, or our friends are going, or whatever the case may be. It's always deemed, the perception is, that's a safe place, just like school should be a safe place. The true reality is it's not. And the, the, the purpose of this show is not to make you not send your kids to school or to church or anything like that. Because as Andrea pointed out, it's less people that are doing these bad things than are doing good things. But we cannot pretend, we cannot overlook, and we certainly cannot hush up the fact that these things are, in fact, happening at every school, at every church. It's just the way it is. Charles, do you want to comment on the, the Catholic Church thing? Yeah, I wanted to, to – I was – I did about five years ago. The, so the last orphanage I was in was a Catholic boys' home. And uh, most of my adult life I revered the, uh, the the priest that was in charge of that home, the headmaster of the home. Well, about five years ago it came to my knowledge when I went back there to speak at that particular home 
that the priest in charge of the home at the time I lived there was actually later years I confessed a sexual predator and, and had actually molested several of the boys I lived with while I was there. And I do recall one one time where I was supposed to go on this trip with them. And subsequently, I was able to reach out to I reached out to five of the boys that were there with me that the priest had admitted to, and, and unfortunately found out three of the five had taken their own lives, uh, partial into that, partial also with two drugs and alcohol addictions, probably stemming back from that. But the one uh, one young man, Joey Hart, who I reconnected with, uh, been able to watch his life turn around and become a whole new thing. Uh, from releasing him from that sexual abuse priest. But here's a situation with me. This priest I revered. He taught me what I thought was the truths and never attempted anything with me. Come to find out, he was, you know, he's molesting boys that I was living with during the two years I was there. It was, it was really an eye-opening experience. Well, you know what's also eye-opening, okay? Here's, here's something else that's eye-opening that people need to understand, and that is the fact of how children are singled out and chosen for this. Now, you, uh, Charles, had different circumstances where you would be a target of something like this uh, to a certain extent, you know, kind of broken home, foster families and all of that, but you weren't chosen. It was other people that you knew. Um, I want to jump back real quick uh, to Andrea because Andrea is only with us for this first half of the show tonight, and right after Andrea, so be ready, boys, I'm going to go to Fred and Charles, because I mean, Fred and Bobby, because... Um, I'm very fascinated in some of the crossover work that the two of you actually do and may not be aware of. So, Andrea, um, do you want to comment on what Charles just said with regards to church and, and stuff? And then do you have a final thought for the listeners? Sure. Well, I have a hundred final thoughts, so I'm going to try and narrow it down. <laughs> um, well, we'll be doing more than a hundred shows. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny when when a story gets told in the news that a teacher is caught um, molesting somebody. A lot of students will come to the to the aid of the teacher saying, he never molested me. He was nothing but a wonderful teacher. These teachers don't molest every single student that they have. And they groom certain students who are not going to tell, who are possibly needy, who they can manipulate more simply than others. It's, it's such uh, almost an art form I have found that it's like they take a class because so many dynamics are similar when I hear different survivor stories. And I want listeners to really open their minds and their hearts to paying attention to behaviors rather than to people. Because a lot of times we still have in our mind that it's the creepy old man that's going to abuse somebody. And it's most of the time the opposite. It's a charismatic person that children are drawn to and someone they trust. And that's what grooming, we've mentioned this word so much, they take their time building up the trust and then manipulating it over time, most of the time. And I want parents and educators, and every adult needs to be the first line of defense for our kids. I want them to be able to pay attention to problematic behaviors rather than people. And I think we'll be able to protect our kids more often. And I wanted to add one final thought about, you asked about, asked about the prevalence of educator abuse. I, There's I something do, about passing the trust. Pre- Andrea? Sure. Before you get into yes. the prevalence, since we just have a couple minutes, when you're talking about the behaviors, can you, um, since we have a few minutes, could you please mm-hmm. let the listeners know about some of those behaviors to look for? Yes. The, these are the things that happened to me that I wrote an entire chapter about, and survivor story after survivor story in terms of educator abuse. But also it's not 
strictly just in the classroom. So many predators employ the same kind of behaviors where they spend time alone with the children. They give them rides home. They buy them presents. Increased communication, especially with the advent of technology, there's so much access that Fred definitely can talk about. Um, Also, there's a shift in the content of the conversation. With my teacher, he would talk with me on a peer level and said I was so beyond my years, he couldn't talk to other people like he talked with me. They start crossing the personal boundaries of opening up about their lives, their problems. So the, the, the child feels that they're a little bit more on their level. When predators in general with smaller children, they cross lines physically, tickling, hugging that's inappropriate, sitting on the laps, slowly desensitizing the child. Or an, an older adolescent crossing the boundaries to see what they can get away with. And there's stages of grooming. There's friendship and trust. There's gift giving and then there's secrets. And if they can keep, the kids can keep certain secrets, they're going to be able to keep the, the larger ones, and then the abuse begins. And, and, and that's is, why it's and, critical and is people it true, know those Andrea, I'm sorry. Is it, is it true, okay. Andrea, just, just so the listener is clear, if they've never experienced this, that that process with educators and whatnot is pretty much mm-hmm. the same process with other pedophiles, because pedophiles and child molesters are a little bit different, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but um, those that are, that, are, that are prevalent to do this, it's a grooming process, and it's very similar to whether it's somebody that's your teacher or not, correct? Yes, absolutely. And, and things can vary in dynamics and in ways, but when I found out that these two girls 20 years later had been abused by my teacher, he took them to the same places. He gave them the same mm-hmm. gifts. He, he made the same kind of music tapes. He made the same threats to them. He did the same sexual acts in the same places. It, it blew my mind back then, and now I understand it. And, yes, I think these things kind of cross over a lot of different avenues of of abusers. Well, we talk about public schools, Andrea, um, and we'll get more into this with Fred in a minute because um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come on. Uh, well, I'm not going to come on to Fred, but really, Fred's going to come on to comment uh, here in just a minute. Um, but the um, when you're talking about prevalence and stuff, and we're specifically talking about public schools, but... Um, we know that churches have these big issues as well. So is it safe to assume that the numbers are pretty equal when it comes to private school as well? I can't really speak to it because the, there isn't any data out there. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was similar. People who have a tendency to abuse children have jobs where they have access to children. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. But the data, the little bit of data that we have is with the public school system. And the the point I was just going to add earlier was that there's something called passing the trash, which is a big problem where a school will find out someone has abused some a student, allows them to silently resign, and they write a, a letter of recommendation to go on to a new school district. And what they found, because there's background checks, but they don't always catch any everything because by the time a predator, a, a teacher predator is caught, they've worked at an average of three school districts prior to being caught. And so that's that's a huge problem. And so there's been legislation that just got passed recently to ban the passing of trash federally by requiring a whole bunch of things that we can talk about another time. But there's so much training that needs to happen so that educators can speak up sooner if they suspect something's going on. 
Certainly, certainly. Andrea, I know I know that you have to go, and we only have the one hour with I'm you. I'm so, so sorry. Thank you I so wish much. I could stay. This is the best time. Oh, that's month, okay. So we have next I, month. If, we have next month. I believe the uh, first Thursday next month is on the 5th, um, and I hope that you can, uh, you know, save that date to come back and, and join us for that. Yeah, I will definitely try. And I just want to say I appreciate what everyone all on the panel and you, Sherry, what everyone's doing with their lives to just try and keep everyone safe. I just am very grateful to everyone. So thank you. Well, thank you. We're very grateful to you and all that you do. It's very important work that you do, Andrea, whether it's your writing or your work with Kids Safe Foundation or just what you're doing out there as an individual and, and who you are. You're a wonderful individual, and uh, uh, you're a survivor. You. And, and that's the thing that people need to understand that, yeah, we've had struggles and we've had problems, right, you know? But Absolutely. But we are viable, Absolutely. viable strong and healthy human beings are survivors. Mm-hmm. But not everybody survives, and that's why we need to keep talking. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that you are able to come back uh, for the, the next one next month. And uh, I, I adore you. All right, so um, I'm going to move right from that to Fred. Frederick, um, could you maybe kind of just touch base on uh, what she was talking about when we're talking about in schools? That's one of your specialties. Um, and could you also into that, and, and I, I don't want to get too too long into it because I need to jump to a, the headline segment real quick, but could you also talk about how cyber forensics plays into some of the stuff within educator scenarios and atmospheres? Sure. I mean, there's, as all of your panelists have talked about, there's, there's a lot of depth into which we could go, but... Uh, very briefly, I think that you know the. I need a twenty-four hours show. <laughs> <laughs> the, points, the points that are being raised about grooming are, I think, particularly relevant because one of the things that has changed in the last ten years or so is that prior to the introduction, particularly of mobile devices, grooming still occurred, but it needed to really occur face-to-face, and it was much more difficult. Certainly, as Andrea's story shows, and I had the, the honor of reviewing her book, it could happen in a pre-cell phone era, but unfortunately, cell phones make that process so much easier because it is um, possible, really, for what what's the statistic now, nine out of ten kids carrying mobile devices, Every single one of those kids has their own phone number, and it is possible to communicate directly with them without any adult supervision whatsoever. And that's, that's a pretty profound change. So that's a huge piece of the problem right there is that we need to establish good, good ethics training, good cyber ethics training for teachers. We need to constantly reinforce the appropriate boundaries between teachers and students. When an offense does occur, and as you correctly point out, I've been doing computer forensics for 15, 16 years now, you know, there's a whole host of different investigative tools that you can use to try to figure out what's gone on. I actually just did a presentation on this for the Great Prairie uh, Area Education Association out in Des Moines, and I was really trying to explain to the superintendents an IT department, not only what could be done, but more importantly, what they need to do to make sure they don't screw up the evidence um, in any kind of misguided attempt to do the investigation themselves. 
So, you know, obviously you can, you can get search warrants. You can seize school equipment and investigate that. Uh, you can issue search warrants for teacher devices at home. Uh, there's, there's a wide range of possibilities. And what listeners do need to understand is that it is extraordinarily difficult to erase the digital trail. You know, we, we tend to think of digital data as being uh, easily destroyed. It really isn't. Um, one of my favorite lines for these lectures is that for all intents and purposes, the delete key is a myth. Uh, yes, you can, you can destroy digital data if you're really dedicated to doing so, but it's much harder than people realize. Well, yeah, it's not as simple as hitting delete button because it's still there. Yes, it is. Right? That's exactly right. Well, oh, you've well, been well, listening, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, well, let me ask you something because I know I know the answer to this, but I don't think the, the listeners, uh, whether they're listening for the specific topic tonight or they're listening because they've been following me with everything I've been doing with the Oregon standoff and the Bundy Ranch and Bundy thing, but there are a lot of people involved with a lot of things that are that are bad that think that they can go and delete Facebook posts and Twitter tweets and stuff like that, and, oh, they're magically gone. Are they? Well, you know, that really is going to vary from one service to another. Um, Facebook, for instance, you may think you've deleted it off Facebook, but Facebook has a general policy of holding on to it for a period of months, six, seven, eight months, um, because they believe you'll come back. And if you re activate your account. Oh my gosh, all that deleted stuff just pops back up. So, but Fred, okay. um, can I inter- can I ask a question, Fred? Um, sure, yeah, I, who, um, who is this? Bobby? This is Bobby. Yeah. Okay, um, go ahead, Bobby. you know with 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 the big fervor now of of privacy and things that Tim Cook has started uh and with the uh, with the announcement this week of WhatsApp do uh yeah. creating this end-to-end encryption um, WhatsApp, I believe, is owned by Facebook, and I think that this end-to-end encryption, everybody is now in this flurry to get better encryption now because the FBI was able to figure out how to get into the terrorist phones, so the tech industry feels like it lost, and so now they've upped the game, and I just couldn't help but, you know, from an investigator standpoint, every time Tim Cook went to the press, I was thinking, and I don't know a thing about Tim Cook, whether he's married or has kids or anything, but I, I, I kept thinking, you know, if that cell phone was uh, some pedophile cell phone and, and Tim Cook's granddaughter was the victim, would Tim Cook have the same problem breaking into that phone if the FBI told him, look, the only way we can prosecute this guy is to get the images off his phone, which is locked, and we can't get in. And so I think that that the tech industry is really, really trying to – keep, you know, the government, the big bad government out of these cell phones, but it's also creating a tool for these perpetrators, be it terrorists, drug cartels, or or pedophiles, that we're saying, hey, look, we're now creating a device where you can store things or communicate things that is out of the reach of law enforcement. You know, I, I, I agree with you, that. But, Fred, pause. Yeah. Pause, because we we have an hour to go, and I need to do the next segment real quick, and we're going to jump back into this. And where we're going to start when I'm done with headlines, because I want to to get to what are the the past big headlines about child sexual abuse and and pedophilia. And we're going to jump right back into this and go back to Bobby, because I have some questions specific about that. Um, to serve lots of purposes, and then I, I do want Fred to uh, address those, and I want to make sure that we get the others in on the call. 
So real quick, I want to go to um, some headlines that have happened. Every, every month when I do the roundtable here, I, I talk about what have been the latest headlines. And there was one particular, well, there were a couple, but one particular one disturbed me like the most today. And it was a headline that says, Babies Don't Tell. And there was a convicted pedophile, a twice convicted pedophile, who to law enforcement had been expressing his fantasy desires to actually open a daycare. Open a daycare. Or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. her. It was a female. Her desires, and, and a female pedophile is rare, mind you, okay? Um, but, you know, to open, uh, you know, open daycare centers. Now, babies don't tell. They specifically were going to seek out infants. Um, because of that reason. And, um, you know, I mean, not just, oh, it just really, really bothered me so bad. Um, there was another big story that happened this week, and that was a, a, a pedophile had arranged. This is kind of like one of those uh, to catch a predator things. And, oh, by the way, Andrea Clemens, we didn't get to talk about it tonight because she's gone, but she just met Chris Hansen from To Catch a Predator. who has a new show that's very similar. Uh, anyway, a pedophile had arranged to meet a 14-year-old girl that he'd been grooming online, and um, he ended up meeting up with a group of vigilantes. This happened in England, and there are a lot of these people that have spun off, uh, which I would like to talk to both Bobby and Fred about after I finish headlines as well. Um, they have spun off from what Chris Hampton was doing with the, to catch a, a predator, and there's all these vigilantes now that are online specifically trying to catch predators, but there's also some legal uh, tightrope walking there and ethics walking there and all sorts of questionable stuff there uh, that we need to talk about. What happened was these vigilantes just kind of beat the crap out of this dude. Um, in New York, law couldn't protect an adopted son of, uh, from an accused pedophile after those details had been reviewed. The actual law uh, worked against them. In that case in New York, there's a whole story on signalsofsilence.org. It's, it's not a story. It's just all the latest headlines. Uh, you can click on it to read further into these and, and click on the links for each story. There was also, um, they're looking at, there's a, the defense is looking for a five-year sentence for a Maple Leaf Gardens pedophile. Five years, um, the child in question was a, was a young child. I mean, a child is a child is a child, but we're not talking about a 16, 17-year-old. Uh, we're talking about someone five or under. Uh, five years, is that enough? I don't know. Uh, the the Vatican, uh, the Catholic Church, they held a private funeral for a Victorian archbishop in Australia as well in the past month since we did this show. Uh, the reason that they did the private funeral, of course, was because of this uh, particular bishop had moved pedophile priests that had been exposed between parishes and that had come out in the public partially due to things like uh, the Boston Globe Spotlight um, and the successive movie that came out and made people more aware of this. So that particular funeral was private because of potential backlash. Uh, chemical castration is back in the news again and also uh, physical castration was in the news again this month. I am not sure where I personally sit on either of those because you might be able to take away a physical genitalia, whether chemically or physically, that you can't take away where the problem was, which starts within the brain itself. It's not just a mental illness. There is a brain defect. And you can take away someone's willy whacker, but you can't take away what's making them want to do that in their head. So um, that's all in the news, and there's things that are trying to happen. So if that matters to you, you need to pay attention. Um, child sexual abuse by children. 
That's something that we don't hear a lot of, but it is an absolute factor, particularly within families or older siblings or cousins or older neighbor children that are abusing younger children, sexually abusing younger children. And um, there is a a story out that there needs to be more clinics on this and more studies on this and certainly more awareness and outreach. But we are looking at the numbers of, uh, victims, and, and, and when we know that the majority of them do come from family and, and friends' settings versus the stranger danger thing, a lot of those, not the majority, but a lot of those are these older children. So we definitely need to uh, get into that. And so I just want to remind the listener as well that April is National Child Abuse Awareness Month as well as Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and the two go hand-in-hand with Sickness of Silence, SOS, that the silence is the real disease, please visit the website at sicknessofsilence.org, and you can find us at facebook.com forward slash sicknessofsilence, and you can follow on Twitter under the, the, the mask tag, which is at CPR Newsfeed. I appreciate every listener and every single share. You need to share. Get out of your comfort zone. I don't care. Share, share, share. All right, so Bobby, let's let's talk about okay, let's talk about investigative kind of stuff. And what and what we're talking, we're talking like cyber stuff and, and of course your specialty, the underwater forensics and all that. But when it comes to these cases with children, people think that they can erase their evidence. And obviously we don't want to give potential perpetrators or those that have already done something, we don't want to give them clues to clean up their mess. But for those that are out there thinking that they can commit a crime and they're on the fence, and, and believe me, there's so many pedophiles, that's why there's organizations like Stop It Now, um, that of, of pedophiles that they're desperate to get help, okay? So what's the best advice for them when they're starting to dabble and looking at things online or they're at a park or whatever the case may be? Let's start with you, Bobby, and then we're going to bounce to Fred. And right after Fred, we're going to go over to um, Sue and then Michelle. Um, are you asking what what the potential perpetrator should do? Well, I, the, the, well, obviously get help. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but yeah. Mean, when you have somebody, <laughs> I mean that, that's a given. But when you have somebody, because we have to put our, ourselves in in their shoes for a moment, it's just it's just like mm-hmm. search engine optimization. As a business owner, I can sit here and think I know how people are going to search, or I can actually let an end user tell me how an end user searches, right? So right. the end user is, is these potential pedophiles. We're the experts. We're the SEO experts on this, per se. So when, when there's somebody out there that's struggling with um, their, their, their problem, okay, the problem that they have, and they don't want to commit a crime, but they start finding themselves touching into those spheres, predominantly going to happen online, as Fred and, and a lot of us know now because of technology. But... When they want to cover their tracks or they think, oh, well, I can do this and it's not going to be found, or I can do this, or it's okay to sit in a park for three hours and maybe take a picture or two, and I'm sitting there, I'm an adult male all by myself without a child. What would you say to those people? Well, I mean, look, I will, I will up front admit that this is – I am not an expert. I'm not a psychologist and things, but I, from knowing – the evolution of this and, and talking to friends that were involved in, directly in the investigations, the the there is a there is an escalation of the activity in these people from like you said looking at something online to going to a park, then to looking at the, even the even the t- 
types and nature of the images that are viewed are escalated as time goes on and, and to the point where they cross certain thresholds. Certain thresholds are crossed to where they do certain things and their activities are, you know, jumps jumps a little bit up higher to where they meet the child or then they, they first and then they first start touching the child or whatever. And so there's this huge evolutionary uh, track that, that, that the, the perpetrator behavior takes. And there are certainly people that have done much more examinations and much more studies of, th of that type of behavior. You know, but the, I mean, honestly, I raised as a Catholic, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was, was a crazy thought when you were asking what should they do. And, I, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was, well, go to your priest. And I think, well, <laughs> not the way to go you know how, how can you do that now right so so well, you know i'm not sure Bobby, that what, what you said and, and <laughs> i want you to continue but what you said is so important and that is because even for me i'm a spiritual person i, I label myself a christian i do not go to church um mm -hmm. for a, a few different reasons one is i I'm, i've been new to my area and there hasn't been a place i've found there's been few churches that i've genuinely liked there's a lot of hypocrisy there um, and, and I don't think I need to give 10% of my income and tithe just to go to a church. But all of the other side, you know, it is a natural inclination for spiritual people to think that's a safe haven. And right. it doesn't mean well, that unfortunately, the, the perpetrators in these cases, unfortunately, unfortunately, often the perpetrators in these cases occupy the very positions that the of, that are the ones you're talking about who to go to, you know, a teacher, a clergy, you know, a coach. Uh, and, 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 and this makes it extreme. This is why this is an extremely difficult crime um, because of, of, of that, that, that part of, of, of the, the, the perpetrator. Exactly. Sorry, I, I had it on mute for a minute because I'm having a coffee with it. I've been sick for a couple weeks. Um, Fred, you want to talk on that? Well, gosh. There's so many pieces to that. <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> exactly right. Listen, me, I, I really – well, I, I can tell you. Wait, Fred, I can tell you. I really want to – I want you to speak on the investigative aspect of this. Okay, so for somebody that is sitting there on the fence, a, a pedophile, okay, um, let's talk pedophiles and not just a, a child molester because we know there is a little bit of a difference there. So somebody that has all these things in their head, right, and they're dabbling or they're thinking that they're being sly or that this is okay and that's not okay. So I want to give an example. You can go to, uh, and Fred and I have talked about this many times, you can go to many, many online free porn sites. And a, a huge portion of them will say teen, uh, you know, teen this, teen that. Does the word teen, can, can a, a potential person that's looking at child pornography, okay, if it says teen, can, is, 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 is this, a, is this a, a defense to say, oh, well, it's 19. I thought it would be 19 or I thought it would be 18. Um, you know what I'm saying? So if you can talk on the investigative aspect of this because sure. I think that if we're honest and if we're very candid, Fred, and I, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm going to go on a soapbox, but I think that if we, uh, if, we, if we can speak on that appropriately, which I think that you guys can, I think that that in itself could possibly thwart some things. Well, you know, what makes this a little bit complicated, Sherry, is the, um, 
is really your definition of thwart, right? I mean, the, my understanding, and, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist either, but my understanding is that this is driven by a profound compulsion, that that the concepts of pedophilia, hebophilia, et cetera, are deeply embedded. Don't forget, I'm pedophilia. <laughs> right, right. But they're all deeply embedded in the psyche of, of the person involved. And, you know, whether you want to call it just a fundamental character issue or an illness or what have you, you know, the reality is that if this is their interest, that's what they're going to go look for. From an investigative point of view, you know, the well, there's two aspects to that. In terms of what, how they can be detected online, you know, the important thing is to understand that, you know, the reality of this is that the FBI does a superb job of monitoring or investigating things like peer-to-peer distribution, where folks are putting content online and using search terms to find it. Um, that is a, an exceedingly dangerous way to engage in any of this behavior. It is also true that the FBI and other law enforcement agencies do a terrific job of monitoring and doing undercover work in chat rooms and things like that. Unfortunately, there are techniques, which I don't think we need to go into, which enable people to share this kind of content a little bit more safely. If someone ends up being detected, though, and law enforcement is able to get a search warrant, then we're getting into the field of computer forensics. And so once digital investigation crosses over to computer forensics, then it is really quite difficult to completely conceal whatever evidence there might be because the tools and techniques for retrieving data from hard drives and from cell phones is outstanding. It's, it's really amazing stuff. So, you know, the obvious advice is that, you know, if you, if an individual who is listening to this has even the slightest hint that the image that they're looking at might involve an individual under the age of 18, then for starters, they shouldn't be looking at it. And then secondly, there, there's an obligation under federal law, especially to report that image to the proper authorities. Now, you know, whether or not someone is willing to do that is a personal choice of conscience for them, but that's really, you know, what should happen. Um, the, the practical matter, and, and, and this is relevant to toss out there, the practical matter is that unless the images in question involve children on the younger side, you know, the, the chances of prosecution may not be that great if we're talking about images of, you know, children who are 16 or 17 just because of the ambiguity. That typically tends not to be the kind of case that the prosecutor will bring. But if we're talking about images of any child under pubescence, so basically 10 to 12, there's absolutely no question that sexually explicit or nude images of children of that age are illegal. Right. So, you know, I, I, and I don't, I don't want to put you and Bobby on the spot, but everything you just said right now kind of made me think of something because I was going to, um, 
I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring Charles and Michelle and Sue into the conversation, and then when we round back to the two of you, so I want you to think about this a minute. Um, and again, I was gonna talk to Bobby and about what he's doing now in the entertainment industry, and what you just said right now made me think of something really relevant. So I'm gonna pose a question to you. And this is for both you and Bobby. Don't answer it yet. Think on this um, because I think that a lot of people would be interested. Um, Bobby does uh, technical advising for crime dramas on TV and, um, you know, like Criminal Minds uh, Beyond Borders. And I don't know if he was specifically a part of Blind Spot, which is a show I love, um, but the company that he, he does this with or for he, or he owns, and he'll tell us that in a few minutes, but, um, you know, does this technical advising. And from his background, okay, and what he knows, of his expertise, just like Fred and other people consult. And so in the entertainment industry, when it comes to portraying crimes of children, A, children are used uh, in the visual for the shows, but also, what is the background tech-wise, if you know, Bobby, and again, think about this a minute because I'm going to go to the others for a couple minutes. What is the background kind of um, lead-in for that advising, whether or not from you necessarily, but from other consultants like you in the entertainment industry? So think on that. I want to jump over real quick uh, to Sue and, um, and Michelle. And from a female perspective, of, of survivors, uh, can you, uh, Sue first and then Michelle, talk about how going through puberty, regardless of when the abuse actually started, which is important, but we've already done that, but starting from puberty and the just different physical changes that a girl goes through, physically and emotionally with hormones and stuff, how what was happening with the sexual abuse kind of played into that, Sue? Um, yeah, it, it happened before, um, but slightly before, because I was probably only about nine, maybe ten. Um, but you start to, it's its its not just the physical changes, it's the emotional changes and, and kind of fluctuations. But you do start to notice, and maybe, maybe it was because I was abused, but you start to notice people looking at you differently um, as you start to develop. And... I became, you know, hold on, Sue. Sue, hold Mm -hmm. on a minute, because I, I I would like you to opine a little bit deeper on what you just said, and because I think it's important. It struck me as important, and that is that people are looking at you differently. Now, the the question I ask is, was that just a perception, or was it a reality? And if it was a reality, why were they looking at you differently? What were you doing as a victim of that age differently, going through puberty? Yeah, um, I developed young. Um, like I said, I was only like nine or ten. Um, it, you do notice pe- men. For me, it was men. You notice men looking at you, and it was your peers. It was the people that you're your, your own age. Um, it was very juvenile. That kind of stuff was juvenile. And um, oh, I can see your bra strap. You know, you know, it was just those things that were kind of embarrassing as a Flag kid. Day. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, to men, I mean, men that were my father's age. Um, and, and, it, and it just might be an up-and-down look because you're, you're developed. You're, you are um, physically a woman, um, but yet I was still only 10 years old. 
Um, and and maybe they kind of backed off a little bit, didn't talk to me if that made them feel uncomfortable, or it went the other way. They they flirted a little bit. Um, and some of it is my perception. There's no way to to break those two apart. Um, some of it was my perception. Some of it, I do feel like that since the because abuse. you have a secret. Because you have a secret in your mind. Yes. Something has certainly changed with you. Something is different about you than the other girls. And you, in your mind, regardless of it's mm-hmm. not sophistication, you feel somewhat sophisticated. You feel older, more mature, in a different way. Michelle, can you talk on that for a minute? Yes, my, mine was actually. After puberty, of course, I was 14. But like the year before, I had I was rather awkward and a little overweight, you know, as I'm going through puberty. And then the next day you're a woman, you know, just like Sue said. And you have the, the body of a woman, but your mind is, is still that of a child, and you just really don't even know what to do with that. I mean, you just, well, again, that, pause for a second, Michelle. I don't, I don't mean to interject, but always it's to pull something important out. Um, now, the, the listeners that are new to this, to you, hearing you and not having been here when you were here before, um, you were also a cheerleader, right? Yes. Okay, so yes. that that's important for the listener's perspective because when you think of an adult male, a teacher, it's not just any girl in school, this was a cheerleader, a cheerleader, and it's not Michelle's fault at all. That's what cheerleaders were, is the short little things and all of that. You're at the sports rallies and rah, rah, rah. Okay, go ahead, Michelle. Well, and I'm glad you pointed that out because the picture that I use when I send an impact statement is my cheerleading picture from when I'm 15. I clearly look like a child. I mean, I get my body is that of a woman, but my face is that of a child, and after the abuse started, you can see the difference um, in my demeanor, in, in my look, in the way I, you know, present myself. It's because, like Sue said, you have that confidence. Even though it's something that's wrong, you feel special and like you're doing something that's, you know, like a secret. And it's, it's hard to explain. It's, it's so hard for your brain to keep up with the emotions. And if you don't mind, can I interject really quick something about to us, what Andrea said about the signs sure. for kids? Because it, cause it yeah, ties sure. into this. Um, she was talking about the signs that you get, and I remember, you know, that being a very awkward age, and you come into looking like a woman, and then the teacher is paying attention to you, and they're telling you how beautiful you are and inviting you down. And, and I started to notice that it, it's almost like they have a revolving door when she talks about the signs. As I would come down as a freshman, junior and senior girls would be leaving his office, and I would hear them laughing and giggling. And it, it, it was always the same thing. And since I've spoke out, many women have messaged me and said, oh, my gosh, he invited me down to be his secretary. He invited me to help with this sport. And it, it's almost like an interview process they go through. They filter through a lot of girls trying to find the exact girl that they can keep quiet. And as as far as signs go, he used to take me out on his motorcycle. The student that was after me, he would just leave from the school parking lot with her on his motorcycle. Staff watch this. Parents watch this. It is never appropriate for a teacher to leave the school grounds with a student in, the, in their vehicle like that. But nobody 
took notice of it or stopped it or did anything. But that was one of the ways he used to abuse me. He'd take me out on the weekend to a secluded area, and it took me until I'm 45 today. I came to that realization about three months ago that the place he pulled off to, he he had to bring somebody else there. It was a place you wouldn't just know. So there's so many signs that are right in front of people that they just don't look at. They are so obvious, and we overlook them. And those are the things that I wanted to talk about with Andrea. They say the same things. They do the same things. It's like they take a class. And if we just open our eyes to that in the hallways, they are so easy to catch. They really are. Um, but they count you, you on know, everybody's silence. You know, it's speaking on this. And I'm sorry that's to interject talking. on that. Go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Let the listener know who's talking. Sue is talking now. Yeah, um, they do count on everybody's silence. Um, as you know, every everybody in the school had some inclination something was going on. I, I, yes. I've seen it in my schools. Um, everybody whispered and, and really, about really it, quick, but nobody really, confronted them. Right, really quick, Sue, not to interrupt you, but really important uh-huh. on that. This this other student after me, a former staff member has messaged me to tell me that she went to administration about that, and administration mm-hmm. told her not to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And this former stu- this other student's parents questioned other parents if that was normal behavior and if they should be concerned about that. So there's so much silence and secrecy that, that really could have stopped a lot of it if somebody would have well, just spoken silence, out. Silence. Mm-hmm. Silence is the real disease. That's why we're talking about it. Yes. Um, so I want to. I want to. Uh, and and we'll we'll get we'll continue to open this all up uh, every every time we do the panel. But I want I want to go to Charles. Um, and from the male perspective, when the the different psychological sexual abuses that began happening with your biological mother, um, can you? Briefly, uh, because I want to go back to Fred and and Bobby after this, um, and then you, you know we're, then we're going to have to close the show. But can you briefly explain to the listeners and 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 being mindful, all of us, that the people that listen to this show are a very uh, mixed, diverse group of people. Some of them experience some of this. Some of them haven't. Some of them are simply listening because they listen to my other show. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, and, and could you kind of speak from the male perspective of that, Charles? Um, well, because, I, you know, guys I, have hormones, too, through puberty. So it's, it's a very psychological and physical time. So, Well, during, during – during what I expressed earlier in the show about the time that I was exposed to things from 13 to 18, showering with a grown woman, uh, being forced to shower with a grown woman, not not doing it in, you know out of my own free will, uh, and being exposed to all types of adult pornography, uh, um, I was also in the midst of dealing with heavy abuse. So I really don't know. I, I look back like how it did or didn't affect me back then. I don't know because I don't like I just know trying to survive. Uh, from everything else that was going on at, at that same time, I lived in a basement of the house. It was so I, I unfortunately I don't have a real strong answer from back then. I can I know how it affected me later in life uh, with with like I said moved on to what I call now a pornography addiction. So again, I want to be I clarify adult pornography because uh, if, if, if I remotely had any inkling towards children, I would immediately place myself in some sort of facility to get assistance. But uh, that being said, adult pornography doesn't mean we don't need assistance either. 
but it it, well, it, it had Bobby, that effect. I, yeah. I'm sorry, not Bobby Charles. Sorry, Bobby, I'm coming to you. But Charles, um, with what, with what you're saying, and you're new to the to the panel, and so if you're not comfortable in answering this question, uh, we completely understand, and 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 feel free to say so. Um, but I I didn't think about this until just what you said, and I and I think it is important. Um, because I know I can speak on it a little bit, but, um, you know, I'm always talking, so someone else can. But when you're talking about the situation being 13 years old and being basically forced to have a, a shower with an adult woman who has to be your biological mother, um, I know that one of the hardest things for people who have never experienced this, especially when it came from a family member or a family friend or someone very quite close in that unit, educator, or those trustful, you know, clergy people that we've been talking about, um, that there are some pleasurable things, uh, not just on a psychological aspect but also on a physical aspect. So when I'm talking about these formative years with hormones, uh, physical stuff and the psychological growth that's happening, do, I know from my own self that that, that became a, 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 a its own psychological battle. Um, my abuse was from three years old till 12, um, and I developed, physically developed early. I was in sixth grade, they labeled me and two other girls the BPC, and I think I can say this on PG-13, which stood for the Big Tits Committee because I have very large breasts. And so I was very developed at a very young age, and I looked very much like a, a young adult woman for for a lot of it. But psychologically, when those things are happening, again, there are some pleasurable things uh, because our bodies react physically, and sometimes we have no control of that. Can you talk on that at all, if you're comfortable? I again, I don't. Uh, the only thing I can recall from, and again, I just I'm just coming to the realization of all this in the past few years that actually had to realize that it was sexual abuse what I was dealt with. Uh, the, only thing, the only thing I do recall is I do recall wanting to explore what other female bodies look like, like being exposed to a grown woman's body, you know, in its total naked form, having to physically wash her, dry her off, uh, physical, you know, that kind of thing. I would be curious and find myself wanting to venture out to sea and try to find ways of peeking without being caught, uh, which is despicable and disgusting, and it makes me crawl, my skin crawl to think I even thought that way or even attempted to do that. Uh, but I don't, I, I know for certain there was never any, like, manifestation in myself of anything, because, again, like I said, I was, there was a lot of other things going on when I'm on one of the other shows we'll go into, but, uh, you know, I, I don't. I recall most of the manifestations from my childhood affected me, and I didn't realize they affected me till after my. I was already away from the. Let's see, I went through a divorce in 1994, and I got out of that home in '81. So it was that many years later that I realized what the pornography and that exposure to it did, and then it took many years of healing from that and, and overcoming that to realize the effect it had not only on my marriage but on me and on my psyche and where it started from its infancy. So that's you where sound, it's you sound a lot like of psychological. A, right, right, and that's very, very important, um, and it's one of the biggest important things, uh, the biggest part of, of all of this kind of abuse. Um, and you sound like a, a really good uh, person, maybe, of interest for 
topic material for Fred's uh, sequel to his book, Obscene Prophets. Um, speaking of Fred, so Frederick, let's go back to you for a minute. And before we answer the question that I posed to you and Bobby, um, I have a question based on what both Sue and, and Michelle and Andrea before and Charles uh, are, are talking about. So from uh, a perspective of a teacher um, or your coach or clergy or whatever, if if you were to give advice, again, I want to talk to people where we can maybe make a difference. If if, if you were going to give advice to the young child, uh, not the perpetrator this time, the young child, uh, that if these things that, that Sue and Andrea and Michelle and Charles have brought up with regards to grooming and all these different scenarios, if they're experiencing that, what is the the best, most non-impactful way, understanding from the victim's perspective, especially a child that's finally willing to say something while it's still happening, um, what is the best thing that they can do? Because it isn't necessarily going and talking to clergy or a teacher or the, even their parent. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting question because you know the old fable of the, you know, how do you boil a frog? You put a frog in cold water and you slowly turn up the heat you know and I, I think for for a lot of kids who are being groomed that is that is an apt metaphor for what takes place and and sherry i would i would urge any child any child who's listening to this who thinks that a particular adult is paying uncomfortable attention to them to talk talk, to talk on that fred talk on that to the children from a cyber Tech perspective. What what should they? What's wrong with a text from a teacher? What's wrong with an email from a teacher? Talk to them on that. Hey, sure, emails not so much of a problem because emails are routinely archived by the school district, so it is slightly less. What if it's from a teacher's white. personal email account? Right. If it's from a personal email account, that's different, obviously. Basically, I would say to any child who is concerned about this or wondering if things are going down the wrong path, that if the teacher is communicating with them at unusual times of the day, or if the teacher is bringing up non-school related subjects, particularly having to do with uh, their emotions, the child's emotions, uh, opening up discussions about, you know, family life or marriage or things like that. These are the kinds of things that one adult does not normally do with a child. And so if they are doing that, then that should serve as a warning sign that the teacher is trying to establish a level of intimacy to to create an emotional equivalency to make it appear as if there could be a legitimate relationship notwithstanding the age difference and the power imbalance. And it, the, a teacher who is good at this will do it so subtly that it will be very, very hard for some children, particularly children who crave that. And that's, that's the really, really dangerous piece of this. But for other children, it, it won't be quite so subtle. And they'll recognize that, hey, why is the teacher saying this to me? Why is the teacher texting me at 11:30 at night? Those things those things should inspire them to talk to a friend, you know, someone their own age who 
may feel more comfortable approaching another adult or if if they if they can summon up the courage and the confidence to do so find somebody that they trust and have them read what the teacher has sent and ask them is this okay Yeah, and and so let me ask you a point-blank question that the answer is not for me, but for those listening, particularly if they're kids, um, but even parents of kids who happen to see this. Would it be worth, I mean, is it a red flag at all, let's just say, that a teacher merely in regular, not late-night hours, texts a child the very picture that's their teacher picture on the school website? Is it still a red flag that a teacher would send a picture to a student at all unless they ask for it for, like, the school newspaper? Yep. And and my response to that, Sherry, is that, you know, for starters, I, one of the things that I tell supervisors, you know, administrators, superintendents, what have you, is that it it is best practice for teachers not to have any unmediated, unsupervised, non-transparent digital communication with any student. So if there's email and that's, not that's just, being... that's not just for the protection of students. That's also for the protection of innocent adults that are teachers. And, oh, and, 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 it absolutely... Because there are people yeah. that are accused wrongfully. Not only are there people who are accused wrongfully, but it is also fair to say that in relatively rare circumstances, there are young children you know, or, or young adults, I should say, you know, who who see that as an objective for them, you know, and they actually seek out the teacher. Now, it's much, much, much rarer than the reverse, but it can happen. And so, you know, the best course of action is for all communication to either be archived, if it's an, if it's an email situation, that's great, or if it's a text message or a Facebook message or something like that, it should be through another adult. So you can do group text messaging very easily. You can do group messaging on Facebook. Make sure an adult colleague or a supervisor or the child's parent, depending on the circumstances, is part of that conversation. And that eliminates 99% of the potential issues we're talking about. The problem that we run into from a technological point of view is that there are so many surreptitious ways for teachers to contact kids or vice versa. And it creates a much broader category of potential um, you know, misbehavior than we've ever had before. Certainly. Technology, uh, I mean, we used to say it was exploding, you know, every couple of years and then every year, and now it's truly, you know, every day. (laughs) Um, Bobby, I mean, truly, Fred, I mean, you know, and and I I don't even know the kind of things that you and Bobby know at all, but uh, just in my own little world, and and I write on tech all the time, you know, I just did the whole robot show with Press TV, but the, um, you know, tech is something that I'm always on top of, and I, you know, it's it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. All right, so Bobby, can you tell the listeners, I want to jump into what you do in the entertainment industry because I think that 
there's mm-hmm. a lot of relevancy in tonight's show. So can you tell the listeners kind of briefly, because we, we have about, mm, I don't know, less than 20 minutes left. If you can tell the listeners a little bit briefly about what you actually do in the entertainment industry for these crime drama shows and, 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 and ring off a, a couple few of them. Let's sure. I'm a, I, will, uh, I actually just uh, started about a year ago in this. I retired from the FBI about two years ago, moved to Brazil, so my wife could produce the Olympics here, and we're moving back to the States awesome. probably right after the Olympics. And um, but So I was hired last uh, fall, uh, last uh, summer, uh, by a guy named Jim, Clem- uh, Jim Clemente. Um, Jim has a production company. He's a retired FBI agent who was one of our original um, behavioral analysis unit uh, agents. And so he's a psychological profiler, and he is a writer and producer on the original Criminal Minds television show. Um, his company, the company I now work for, also does Blind Spot and Quantico and a number of other shows, NCIS and did the unit. Oh, I like Quantico and, um, too. Yeah, well, <laughs> Jim is in is Jim is in this car, in the perfect position now on his show, and I am on the new show, which is a spinoff called Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. But it also follows a a team of behavioral uh, scientists who are FBI agents who work out of our behavioral analysis unit in Quantico, which exists as a real thing. And my our show is different only because our team takes all the overseas cases. So last night we had two episodes originally air. One was in Paris, one was in Tokyo. Um, the, 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 the big difference about our show and why Criminal Minds, the, the mothership has been so successful, I think, is that the, the big difference in, in, from most other police shows are that it really focuses on the psychological profile of the of the perpetrator, but but how that's developed is through the victimology, and so oftentimes the show really revolves around the victim and it, looking at patterns of victims and multiple victim cases. And I think that's what relates to our, the topic we're discussing tonight is is that our teams really delve into. Who are these victims? Why would they selected as the victims? There's a there must be a set or some commonality between the victims that will lead us to the perpetrator. And that's the thing that people really enjoy about the show. I myself, I work with the writers on some story ideas. I hope to write for the show eventually. And I work with the cast, Gary Sinise and some of the other actors are are great on how to, you know, how to, some of the tactical stuff, some of the technical stuff, how to talk to people, what to say, the language. I work with the directors and, and, and the directors of photography about how to set up a shot and how we, how we would do things. How, how would we get out of a car? How would we stop our car? So a lot of, a lot of the more tactical things, the, the technical things. But I also work with the writers. We, we sometimes rewrite scenes. I remember one episode, Gary was uncomfortable with a line, and so he, we, him and I and the writer kind of all got together and we rewrote it right on the spot and, and stuff. So th- that's the thing. Th- th- those are the types of things that I do. Um, I hope to have a more of a role in, in, in coming up with, with original story ideas as if, we get a, if we're lucky enough to get a second season. Um, but like I said, I think that the, the interesting thing for me is that, is that each show, um, you know, we, the, the, the team really delves into um, the victimology, and, and that's what leads us to the perpetrator, paints the picture of the perpetrator. In the cases we're th- talking about tonight, the victimology is so important. Um, and, and, and as Fred was talking about, the grooming process is so, so subtle and so long-term. And there's such a, a mental divide between perpetrator and victim in these cases. When you're talking about a child and you're talking about an adult, 
that it really makes it it's just it's just not a typical type of crime that that you can call on the victim in any sense to kind of you know figure it out or or avoid it and and when i'm listening to some of the the talk about what can you tell a child well you know I, you can only go so far in that because sometimes these guys pick children that are at risk anyway. In my own family, it was a, a, one of my relatives with a learning disability. And so they didn't have the capability to kind of react or read some of this stuff. So I think, as one of the other panelists said, we need to concentrate and focus on um, um, institu institutional protections and, and beyond that, um, shows like this where you actually get the conversation going and people are talking about it. So a Penn State doesn't happen again where a coach is seen bringing young children into a shower and, and nobody says anything, you know. And, and so I think uh -huh. that, that both, in, both institutional protections need to be enhanced and I think conversations need to be, uh, need to be greatly more, much more greatly generated. Sherry, could Thank I uh, uh, add to that? Yes, please do, Fred. Yeah, real or quickly. Charles? Uh, yeah, I, I Fred, go ahead. Yes, Fred. <laughs> I, I, I just Bobby want the listener to know, not just me, who's talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I, I think Bobby's point is, is exactly right, that, that it, so much of it has to do with the kind of institutional support and training uh, that we give. When I was out in Des Moines earlier this week, one of the topics that I was talking about was the concept of, of teaching cyber ethics throughout the uh, education and certification process for both new teachers and then as an ongoing part of professional development for teachers as they progress in their careers. Because not only do you want this ethical grounding to prevent misconduct by those teachers, but you also want to create a culture of safety so that we break down within the school districts and within teaching communities this silence, as you correctly point out, that masks a lot of the misbehavior. We need to get people to the point where they're willing to trust their gut instinct, both kids and adults, and say something when it doesn't feel right. Well, I, I agree. And, and so I, I want to go back to Bobby with something specific again about the entertainment industry. And I also think that you, Fred, as I said before, I went to the girls and to Charles uh, that you can uh, maybe speak on. And as a mom, my, my kids are all adults. I'm a grandma now. But, um, you know, as a mom, there were a lot of different things within cartoons and you know, other things that just really piss me off. And I'm like, that is like adult stuff, and it's just being snuck in there. And when I would watch, you know, whether it was like a Lifetime TV movie or whatever the case may be back in the day that I watched that was supposed to be like real-life stuff, when it came to kids, I kind of always had two beats. And one was the fact of I hate I hate horror movies like, you know, the old movies of Stephen King like Children of the Corn and they're using kids in these horrific movies because I think that that creates its own damage somewhere and somehow. But the, the choosing of children to play these roles, these roles of being uh, abused, uh, for whether it's for television or movies, um, but also the actual information, and as Bobby was pointing out, you know, they're looking at the psychological aspects. So, Bobby, if you can explain to the listeners, and, and I know that you're relatively new to that world, but with your FBI background as well, I think that 
part, you know, there's a big part of what you do is to do with your expertise, but there's that human nature in you too. And so if if you were going to be tasked with a show, uh, whether it was uh, Beyond Borders, Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, or another another show uh, through Jim or, or another entity, would you be more inclined, especially after doing this show and hearing survivors and just hearing like a really just casual conversation, um, to even dig a little bit deeper into that and it not be, I think what I have found, not with your words, but I mean in general out there is there's a lot of archetypes used and and I know that that's a simple way, but there is so much seriousness and as you were talking early on in the beginning of the show about there's, you know, five years for some agents is all they can do with cases with kids like this. And, and, and just FYI, in my understanding, a lot of the alphabet agencies are that way when it comes to child crime. Um, so it, child crimes are different uh, in how they affect people. So I feel that they can be portrayed better on television and movies. So what what can you talk on on that? Well, I, I, twofold, um, on the on the entertainment side, um, when the writers do their research and stuff, we often bring in, and almost every show, I'm the only, I'm on set and in the, in the, in the, in the production team, but oftentimes for individual episodes, we bring on experts in this stuff, because I'm, I'm not an expert in every, uh, everything. Obviously, my expertise is very narrow, but for, you know, if we were developing and if we get a second season, I'm, I know our Mothership show has been on 11 years, and I know they've touched on this, this type of crime, but oftentimes they'll bring in an expert somebody like some of these panelists we have tonight, we'll bring them in for individual episodes for consultation for at both the writing stage and the actual shooting stage. And I know that there are many, many institutional protections for child actors who are playing these types of roles. And one of the things that kind of woke me up, and we had a couple of children scenes that weren't, uh, the children weren't um, necessarily... Um, uh, victims of, of sexual crimes, but uh, I remember one, the guy was holding the child at gunpoint and the, the team breaks into the room to save the child, whatever, and the, there's a shootout ensues. But it's amazing what you can do with the magic of, of television, right? So the way they block those shots and the way they do those shots, the child, and, uh, you know, was never in the room when, when even when the blanks were shot at the, or when the blood was coming out of the guy. It, it certainly looks that way when you watch it, but the way they shoot all this stuff, the, the, even the child actor who was, I think, four or five, um, you know, and I saw Gary get down and, and talk to the child beforehand, you know, the whole thing. And they have a they they have a, an assigned person that's with them, that's taking care of them. And there's a lot of protections for that kind of stuff. It's no longer this. Uh, you know, I remember Gary Cooper told a story when he was on the first in the, in the 1940s or 50s, the first champ movie um, where they needed him to cry. So they had him befriend one of the assistant directors early in the production process. And the day they were shooting that scene where the kid had to cry because his boxer dad was about to die. They took the, 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 the assistant production, assistant producer, assistant director's dog who the kid had befriended during the weeks and months of production uh, and 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 took him outside and 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 fake feigned like they shot the dog and then they pushed the kid in front of the camera so he could so he could cry basically for, for the scene uh, we're you know we're way beyond this was this is a story that was in jackie cooper's book but we're way way beyond you know that day you know and so there are there are a lot of protections for the, for the children the way the way it's shot and stuff and and uh 
so so th- that's that's how I think that the show would handle it. We would bring in an expert on the writing end of it um, or multiple experts on the story end of it, how the story is developed and how to build these characters. And then on the actual physical acting side, there are steps they take to protect, you know, protect a child, the way they shoot it, the way they block the scene and things like that. Well, Fred, Fred's cracking up, so here's what I'm going to do. We have five minutes left of the show. I need one minute at the end to close the show. Fred, um, I always give the experts, uh, as much as I appreciate the survivors, um, I, I, I want to give the experts uh, always some closing moments. So, Fred, you got 60 seconds here. Well, Sherry, that's very gracious of you, and, and honestly, you know, if I haven't said this before, I really wish that I had that that I would absolutely take a backseat to each and every one of the survivors um, because I think the courage that they everyone demonstrates in in sharing their story is is really humbling. Um, you know, I, I I'm deeply fortunate that I don't have a similar life experience, but I I'm dedicated to bringing the the expertise that I have to try to prevent this from happening to others and and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to help expand my audience well I, I appreciate that that was less than 60 seconds Fred I'm proud of you <laughs> um, you know I, well the reality it's, is it's, Sherry that... <laughs> <laughs> don't say that that's my crutch word I told everybody I'm going to create like a drinking game or something because I always say um and the reality is and um the fact, something about facts. Um, but, you know, I mean, and, and, and this is important that we're laughing for the listeners to understand this. As Fred and Bobby, who have not experienced what the others on the panel have experienced, uh, they experience it in a different way, a separate way because of their professions. But we, we still are regular people, you know, and we still, this is a heavy topic and it is okay for us to laugh, and it's okay for us to make jokes. But what isn't okay, and I, and I want to say something really quick, and then I want to give Bobby an opportunity to make a closing statement, and that was a story I didn't get to get to in headlines because this, this is about what's funny and what isn't. There is a, a man, um, Mr. Jacobs, uh, and he had a white van he had purchased cheaply because he was going to go on this road trip, and he painted this white van with his own red paint, and it said free candy, and he put little child's, red painted handprints so it looked like blood you know and free candy and it ended up going viral earlier this year someone took a picture in the neighborhood it freaked a lot of people out i mean i mean it's a white van first of all okay and so um when it went viral and people tracked him down he says this is what he said well i was just kind of thinking like most things in life you can't change what you can do is embrace it and celebrate it well this is where i think that humor is not appropriate, and what that is is not appropriate because it is a white van with looks like blood, real blood, and real bloody children prints inside and out offering free candy. And I think that that continues to kind of victimize victims and survivors, uh, let alone uh, the, the families of children that are still missing or, or, were, or dead, one of the ones Bobby pulled out or something like that. People need to understand that there there is a point in time where satire, parody, and humor is completely inappropriate. Bobby, you got about 30, 40 seconds. You got a closing statement for the listeners? 
Sure. I just want to reiterate what I think you had said and one of the other, at least one of the other panelists said. Um, this is, you know, and I am as sensitive to false allegations and the damage they can do as anyone is. But this is a situation where if it doesn't seem right, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And you should speak up, whether you're a friend, a family member, a student, a teacher. If, if you see something and it's making the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand out, you should say something to someone. You should follow through and make it so that it, if, if what you even in your wildest dreams think might be happening is happening, you have taken a step to stop it. And that's right. So if you're listening tonight, please go to sicknessandsilence.org and check out the different resources and links and stories there. I want to thank Sue, Bobby, Andrea, Frederick, Michelle, and Charles for joining me here tonight. I hope all of you can come back for the next First Thursdays, which will be May 5th. Uh, and then I will be back next Wednesday with my regular show on Challenging the Rhetoric right here on Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, all of you, and thank you for the listeners. Uh, We'll be back soon.